Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas on how to lead your church into the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Now, here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. This is Lauren Richmond Jr. Today, I'm welcoming Andrew Root to the show. Andrew is the Carrie Olson Balson Professor of Youth and Family Ministry at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. He writes and researches in areas of theology, ministry, culture, and younger generations. His recent books are Churches in the Crisis of Decline, When Church Stops Working, and What We Will Be Talking About Today, The Church After Innovation. Andy has worked in congregations, parachurch ministries, and social service programs. He lives in St. Paul with his wife, Kara, two children, and their dog. When not reading, writing, or teaching, Andy spends far too much time watching TV and movies. And for our regular listeners, uh, you may notice my voice is a little off today. I'm actually home dealing with COVID, so please uh, forgive any uh, voice struggles or mental lapses. But uh, for then, let's welcome Andy to the show. All right, welcome to the show, Andy Root. Thanks so much for being here. Um, appreciate your time. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Is there anything else uh, you'd like our listeners to know about you that's not in your bio? Oh, man, I don't know. I think it even says in my bio that I watch way too much TV, in, at least in one bio somewhere. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, th- I think maybe, I don't know. What are you watching right now? What I'm watching right now, well, we're watching... Um, the last of us on HBO. Okay. We're, we're pretty, we're pretty into that. Okay. And we've been watching uh 1923 too on, and Paramount plus, but I don't know. We're a little lukewarm on that, but okay. uh, yeah. So those are the, the main two things, but we're going to, we're going to start your honor soon um, on, on showtime, I think, but uh, Boy, all these streaming channels, I unfortunately do not have, but uh, yeah. I'm not into a horror, so I would not do the last of us. Irregardless. Yeah, it's it is interesting. It's a I, I, more than horror. I'd say it's just like dystopian, but mm-hmm. uh, it, it does have a horror element to it for sure. Yeah, I, I don't. I want to sleep at night, so suspense is not my thing. <laughs> it is very down. suspenseful. My wife yeah. screams all the time, and it's uh, it's actually quite annoying. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I think I just connected the dots here recently. Your wife is Kara Root, who's a pastor. Yeah, yeah, she goes by Kara. Kara, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's um, right. Um, yep, she's a pastor in the, uh, in South Minneapolis. So you have kids. So I'm just kind of gonna envy uh, and I guess shame myself about y'all have two very successful apparently jobs, doing the kid thing and apparently still functioning well. So maybe we can take I can take some notes after this conversation how you do that. Well, I don't know if we're doing it well. Okay, I mean, we're, we're stumbling through life, you know. Um, yeah, I have an 18 year old and, uh, both of the, and a 15 year old daughter, an 18 year old son and a 15 year old daughter. And they would probably tell you differently on Fair uh, enough. how, how eloquently we're doing this. We're actually, like I said, stumbling and getting concussed along the way as we, uh, as we, we try our best. Fair enough. Um, well, to share if you would kind of your journey of faith, what that looked like initially, what it looks like today. 
Yeah, it's uh, you know, I in some ways I'm a, a kind of classic uh, Protestant raised in the church kind of kid, and then in maybe other ways not so much. Like I my, I don't come from a family of church professionals in any way, you know. Like my dad wasn't a bishop, and as a matter of fact, my dad rarely went to church other than when it uh, there was snow on the ground in the Upper Midwest because mm-hmm. his his real religion is golf, and uh, so. Uh, but I got pulled into my church really young and, uh, you know, started being asked to be part of stuff and it, it had a huge impact on me, but probably the, the, the biggest impact was when I was quite young, which has kept me pretty interested in the spiritual experience of children is that when I was four, tragically, the first friend I ever had got cancer and I wow. you know, kind of watched him die mm-hmm. as a four-year-old, but then had a, like really experiences with, uh, I guess today we would, you know, call it experiences with trauma or whatever, but just really mm-hmm. kind of deeply frightened by by that experience and was, you know, kind of haunted by nightmares and things like that. But had had a really profound experience of the presence of Jesus Christ um, at that age of a God who kind of meets me in these places of despair and brokenness and uh, had this. It's I, I tell about it in one book of. You know, being six and moving into a new house and it was in a, in a new development and falling into this. Uh, dug out foundation for this house. My mom telling me never to go near that hmm. thing. And mm-hmm. uh, I really wasn't in any danger. You know, it was just dusk and it was getting dark, but yeah. I was frightened. Yeah. And it really did represent like the abyss in the world and, a, and, and the kind of evil or just the manifestations of darkness in the world that can come and take the life of a four-year-old or five-year-old. And I remember, you know, being stuck in that hole and praying and really wow. feeling the presence of Jesus Christ come to me there and um, feeling you know, the spirit uh, yelled to me to run and I ran myself out of that. And just like the the women at the tomb, I ran into my house on a warm Minnesota summer night and testified to my mom that I prayed and Jesus had got me out of the hole. Wow. Um, and uh, that experience has never left me. I mean, hmm. the, real, the real concrete experience of Jesus Christ who comes and, and, and ministers life in the midst of death has been a real central dynamic um, to my life. That's... Uh, started when I was, you know, four or five, six years old and, and it has stuck with me. And so, um, yeah, I, I often return to that. I mean, in some ways to deconstruct my story would be like, Oh, isn't that cute? Like you, right. if I wouldn't have come home in 15 minutes and you know, my, my parents would have found me there, you know, so I was not in really any danger, but there was this real moment of crying out to God and having God meet me in a, in a real way. So, um, I think it's formed my life probably more than anything else. And, wow. uh, and yeah, and still, you know, trying to day by day walk the journey of uh, trying to uh, give my life over to this uh, this God made known in Jesus Christ, and uh, am really moved by continuing to try to think about this and mm-hmm. think about the the practice of ministry as a really profound theological reality where a very living God meets us. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, what are some spiritual practices that are meaningful for you? Yeah, I mean, like the the cop out answer to this is like my whole life is a spiritual practice. Right. I, right. You know, at least at least until I start watching TV. I, though I could, you could get me to justify actually that watching TV is a spiritual practice too, because it's mm-hmm. it's research for all the all the you know writing I'm doing or whatever, which is mm-hmm. really a cop out. It's not. It's just pure 
you know, entertainment and mm-hmm. uh, turning off my brain. But that's how I can justify all the streaming services you don't have that are on my <laughs> credit card bill. I can justify that. You can expense research, them. <laughs> man. Yeah, right. There's, it's a form of spiritual practice. Uh, no. So, you know, like reading and writing, I think is a spiritual practice. Um, it's also an academic exercise. So I feel like I have to have other spiritual practices that fuel my life, but I'm kind of like, you know, an early riser. I'm, I'm, I'm most productive in the morning, but I get up, I, have a bowl of cereal. And then I, I spend about 25 minutes in silent prayer and wow. uh, prayer with an icon that, you know, it, you know, I'm a, I'm a good Protestant um, Lutheran kid with reformed connections to an education, but uh, there's some of the religious practices of the East that have, have gotten into my, in, into my being. And so, uh, yeah, an icon of Jesus and um, trying to be silent in meditative prayer um, is important. And then, you know, I, I, read scripture every morning and um and uh yeah that's pretty central to me i think prayer is a, a pretty formative uh yeah formative for us even as we think about kind of faith in a secular age that uh, teaching people to pray again i think is uh is really important and so i'm trying my best to to live into that teaching people to pray writing that down um well thanks so much for sharing those so I was excited to have you on. Um, came across your work, talked to your publisher, got a copy, couple copies of some of your books, and read recently the Church After Innovation. And um, I think what just again, I'm going to nerd out here a little bit. What I loved about the book first was like when I first started, I was like, "Well, am I reading an economics book here? Am I reading a theology book? Am I reading a history book?" Because um, like I feel like the first like. 4,500 pages was like some good, um, what's his name again? Um, the demand side guy, help me out here. COVID brain. Um, oh, the Keynesian. Thank you. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. You know, so, some good debate about Keynesian, um, you know, uh, economic theory. Anyway, yeah. um, let me get back to where we're supposed to be. Um, so I really enjoyed the book for that matter. I recommend it for folks because it really takes a deep dive into what's the word you use the, the, um, not the cultural milieu, but similarly deposit. What was the word? Yeah, 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 yeah. This, uh, it's a French word that I'm even embarrassed to try to pronounce like dispositif or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but yeah, just really the malaise of what it means even to live in a, in a secular age. And, um, yeah. So I think I'm going to kind of kind of start this a little simple, maybe, and try to get dig deep here a little bit, and hopefully through my COVID brain makes sense to our listeners and to you. Um, but I think the the first quote that really, well, many quotes stuck out to me, so I had to, to, to narrow it down here. But the first one I wanted to run by you was just this quote about human beings needing ritual of dependency or excuse me, de- dependability, order, constancy that lead to some security. Now, unlike you, I grew up um, independent fundamental Baptist where it was kind of, we were allergic to anything that looked and smelled like ritual or liturgy or ritual, even though we wouldn't use those words back then. That's what, you know, we had our own rituals and liturgies. Um, but I imagine like me, you'd probably agree like, culturally we're really against um this kind of any kind of real ritualization what do you think that's about 
Yeah. And especially in the, the context of this book and, you know, thanks for the kind words about the book and it's, yeah, you know, it is, I, I feel like in relation to my other books, it's a little bit of the old man, get off my lawn book, you know, like it's uh, taking something that people are really into right now across mm-hmm. Protestantism on innovation and being like, well, what do we really mean here? And yeah. um, so I, it's a little bit of my party pooper book probably, but well, hopefully we'll it's informative, but yeah, <laughs> hopefully it's informative to people. But this is this is a you know this is a great quote to start with because it's really a central one. Is that um, that human beings I think really do need forms of ritual and needs forms of uh, what Charles Taylor calls strong evaluations. I mean, like kind of moral visions, and those moral visions are always perpetuated or ingrained with us in certain rituals and in, in, in certain kind of liturgical forms, and um, whether we call those. The, that ritual and liturgy or not. But one of the things I wanted to explore is how work itself, um, that people really need to be working in environments. I mean, this is a book that really tries to explore work and how work seems to be more advantageous to the human spirit when it provides dependability and mm-hmm. when it provides something like ritualization, you know, just a, in order to it. But but ma- mainly why we want rituals so bad is because we need dependability. It gives us what one social theorist calls ontological security. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it makes us feel like we have a place in the world, you know, that, we, there, that again, the dependability is so important. But one of the things that happens in this kind of uh, new capitalist kind of perspective that we're in and by new i mean like since the 1980s right. that we've been been living with and and thanks for mentioning economic theory and stuff i feel incredibly insecure about it like i you know i like i know enough mm-hmm. about economic theory to get by here it's not i'm yeah. not an economist in any way but the shape of work obviously has something to do with the economy and when we get into this new neoliberal kind of economic reality you have to allow for a lot of flexibility. Like companies have to be constantly flexible and they have to get to a place, which I find really quite fascinating to a place of permanent innovation Mm -hmm. and permanent innovation is the only way to make sure that in this kind of Darwinian uh, competition for profits that you don't end up, you know, bleeding out, you know, in in a big corporation, like we saw this Mm -hmm. in the 1980s, like even IBM could get punched pretty hard in the gut by some, uh, by a company like Apple, who's, being run out of someone's garage in Silicon Valley, you know, like it became a very different world. So you needed a whole workforce that would be flexible, a whole workforce that would choose permanent innovation. And that meant living with a lot of just dependability, not being there. Mm -hmm. And so there had to be a way to secure that. And I think the way kind of creativity and rhetorics of innovation and entrepreneurship come in, become a way of managing people or offering people something else in place of the kind of de- dependability and ritual that um, we often need. And, you know, the big push I'm trying to make in this book is what that, how that reworks our view of the self and um, that the self has to become this kind of creative juggernaut. The self has to always be um, its own little business. Um, and that's the kind of workers we need. And that's the way we kind of feel like we need to live um, even beyond work, that we're always kind of in a in a competition. That we're our daily lives are either taking W's or taking L's. Mm-hmm. You know, like we, you hear young people use that kind of language all the time. That it's a it's an all competition at all times. So that that's where I was going with that that kind of sense of of dependability and uh, how now what becomes dependable at work is trying to be creative, right, and, um, and be expressivist in in a kind of uh, individualistic way. Yeah. I mean, I'll say I'm not an economist either. I have an MBA. 
So some measure of business training. And I was like, man, this is spot on from my perspective, mm-hmm. at least your, your kind of analysis and critique. Uh, but again, fanboying here. <laughs> um, speaking of, you, you mentioned like this need or, um, or expectation to be competitive, always expressive. I think that plays into the next question I was going to ask you here about the innovation and the move or the challenge of innovation in churches is, is this inherent uh, expectation that pastors kind of transition from being, um, you know, a liturgical leader to like an innovator to, to, to managing change. And I think you, you point this out in the book and that certainly, I think this is a, a real, real, real challenge with this kind of obsession of innovation, which again, kind of confessing here, this is a lot of what I talk about in the podcast, but the real challenge of it is it's asking pastors to do something they didn't necessarily go into ministry for, weren't trained for in seminary. Is that fair? I think that's really fair. And I, I also like, I don't want the book to be an anti-innovation book. It sure. isn't that in any yeah. way, but I, I do want us to say, well, why, why are we, why does it feel like everyone's attracted to this? Like what, what, what goods are inherent in it? And, you know, let's be, so we can use innovation. Let's be aware of where it comes from. Mm -hmm. And maybe some of it's, it's, it's dark, it's dark sides that uh, may be there. So I, I do think what's happened that's really quite fascinating is that Protestantism in general, I think you can say has always from its beginning, at least it's like reformed 17th century kind of beginnings has been really concerned about work. You know, mm-hmm. like if, if Max Weber is right, it's, it is reformed Dutch Calvinism that creates the conditions for capitalism, you know? So there's always been something about belief inherent within the capitalist system. Um, and I, I, and so, but what's been fascinating is that Protestantism kind of spilled out its larger theological perspectives spilled out into the work world and changed what it meant to work And this happened across Western society. Like for instance, hard work became a good right in the medieval period. No one thought it was good to work hard, you know, like no one was aiming for that, but almost every middle-class parent now just wants their kids to learn how to work hard. Right. Or you just have to watch a little bit of TV and you hear people, um, and this is part of our sports culture too, just glorifying people who are on blue the collar. Who are, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Working hard. That's the yeah, thing right are, now in sports, blue collar. Yep. 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 And you're out there. You're, yeah. And, and even as people who are kind of, you hear this on shark tank too, like people are always on the hustle. You gotta be on the hustle. You yeah. gotta be on the hustle. Yeah. You gotta be on the hustle. Yeah. And that would have just not been something anyone could imagine without the impact of Protestantism. But what I find fascinating and try to explore in this book is that we've had this kind of reverse where Protestantism kind of washed out it's, it's, it's forms washed out into the work world and shaped what qualified as good work. Mm-hmm. But now we've seen an almost reverse flow where the form of work, how we're working has flowed back into the practice of ministry. And now for pastors, what qualifies as good ministry is a certain form of late capitalist work, which is to be a constant innovator. And I don't think people are trained for this in, in many ways. And um, and I am a little skeptical, <coughs> excuse me, that even the core of ministry should be about being innovative, not begin again, because innovation is bad, but because I think it's usually born out of the desire to be innovative is born out of the fear of decline. Mm. And I just am not so sure that the fear of decline is going to ever, that there's not the impetus that we have to solve the issue of decline. I don't think it's going to ever get us to a faithful place um, in the context of, of, of just the church and in particularly ministry. Um, and so, 
I, I think some people are really trying to push innovation as a, a kind of faithful way of being, but I think they haven't thought enough about the kind of inherent theological anthropologies that are, that are set in there. And I think others denominations and others really want their pastors to be innovative because innovation at one level is getting more out of less. Right. And if, there's any context where there's less it's uh it's pastors and churches you know so be an innovative pastor because then you can you can win more resources out of less and i don't know i feel like the gospel is calling us to something deeper than that Hmm. so much questions i want to ask you based on that question but uh a lot more so much so much stuff here to work through um let me ask you this I think, I don't know if you use this word in just what you said, but certainly in your book, you talk about the creativity and the drive for singularity being, a, I think, a key word, a key theme in the book. Um, and I think you use the word cancerous, and the, which, again, strong language. Uh, yeah. But I thought about this, and tell me if you disagree. I thought about, like, even in my own last 10, 15 years of church experience through my own deconstruction and reconstructing, seeing other people kind of deconstruct and, and sort of like deconstruct their way out of church. Like I found, I found self-expression and I don't need church anymore. And I was curious if this kind of gets at what you're, you're trying to get at. Yeah. I mean, it actually really does. And, you know, I don't quite deal with this. Well, I mean, I think I have some, some kind of points that, that could lead a reader down that way um, in the book, but I, I do, I do see that. Like, I, mm-hmm. I think you find this on whatever social media platform you're on, but you know, the one I'm on, which is probably the most dumpster fire of all of them, Twitter yeah. is that you, you can see people performing them. The, the, there's a, just a drive to always be performing the self, right? showing yourself as this creative, singularly unique person that other people should be following, giving an attention to. Yeah. And I do think for people who grew up in more conservative Protestant context, there becomes a kind of strategy or a kind of performative shape that this kind of refusing everything you've grown up with mm-hmm. becomes a way for you to kind of exercise your singularity. Now there may be some good reasons to deconstruct, yeah. but I do think we have to be very, I don't know. We have to be very aware of how this whole system that we're in and this whole kind of late capitalist system we're in just really encourages us to be performative selves and um, to see congregations, to see people, to see my gosh, the coffee shop in your, in your area that what gives them ultimate value is their ability to reach towards singularity, to being uniquely singular. Mm-hmm. And um, that is, that's fu- to, to think about singularity means that there's a fundamental competitive reality here. And, and in many ways, that's, I mean, you've heard people say this about Twitter or Instagram or something that, you know, like my, my Instagram game isn't very good. Right. And that does, that does unveil um, that does reveal that, it's a game. Like there's a game at play yeah. here, winning attention, winning eyeballs, winning more follows, um, winning more re- retweets is, is a game. And I just think that this has become something that's really central to the way our economy functions, but then the way we, we function as individuals and, and it, it just shapes us in a, in a way that I, I want to question. Yeah. And, and I, I heard this on another podcast I was listening to, uh, I guess is making the point that the kind of the spiritual, but not religious, I think kind of, I imagine kind of gets at your same point here that the, the onus is on the individual to keep kind of maintaining their own kind of religious formation. I mean, I, I know it's kind of contradictory, but I think, and, mm-hmm. and again, the, 
it seems like it can take one saying, I don't need church because I'm, I'm formed beyond church. And if, if I'm understanding your book correctly, you're saying that church is an essential aspect of one's spiritual formation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, your ability to, I think you have to, as a, this is, I think as a Christian expression, you have to be in community Mm -hmm. because I think, um, I mean, I think one of the moves I'm trying to make theologically at this end of this book, and particularly returning to these mystics of, of the Rhineland, um, these, these, uh, 12th, 13th century um, mystics is that there's a need to make a confession Mm -hmm. and to confess that what you need for salvation or what you just need for a sense of fullness in your life is not within you, that it's outside of you. And Christian community is essential because it reminds you again and again that you have to give yourself over to something that is outside of you. And that starts with another community of people that hear your confession and care for you and that we all need others to minister to us and care for us. And I do think that um, some of the moves, I think spirituality plays a very interesting role in our in our cultural context, but I think it does become absolutely do-it-yourself. But it, it also becomes really necessary because you're in the constant you're in constant competition and that constant competition of performance of the self is incredibly chafing. And one of the ways to deal with the chafing and, you know, to be more specific, like the anxiety in the burnout of this is you're going to need some spirituality. Hmm. Like the spirituality becomes a way of coping with uh, the hyper competition that you have um, around every, around every turn. Um, that spirituality becomes a way of exercising your authenticity and even you can use it as a kind of way of broadcasting um, or at least uh, uh, kind of helping you engender your own singular creativity. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there you can see like as a, a post sixties in, into the a neoliberal age in the eighties, how there becomes a, all this arrival of, of uh, new age spirituality and, uh, hmm. and other forms mm-hmm. where uh, spirituality um, or a spiritual life gets disconnected from organized religion because organized religion isn't singular. It doesn't seem very creative. Mm. Oh my gosh, mm-hmm. you know, you're always turning backwards to a tradition. Right. You have to you have to submit yourself to a community of people. Right. Um, it, it's not a lot of value added, maybe, towards this race of presenting yourself as a singularly unique performative self. Yeah. Um, but I think that becomes part of the, the huge problem here. Um, so I, I, I like what you said about when I read this section of the book, my mind went to soteriology and we may not, we probably don't have time to dive in as much as there is here. I'm thinking there is here, but correct me if I'm wrong. This is like a soteriol, I can't say the word here. Soteri. COVID brain. Soteriological question here is, you know, so I thought, I thought that was fascinating. Um, where does salvation come from essentially, right? Is what you're asking. Yeah. I mean, in, in multiple ways too. I mean, at one way I I, I'm asking that question just broadly, culturally, Mm -hmm. like every human being, I mean, we're kind of back to human beings needing rituals, human beings needing kind of moral frameworks that every human being has to live with some sense of something saving them, Mm -hmm. you know, like something will make their life full. Something will give them, um, connection to, to a a, a good life. Um, but I do, uh, you know, to, to echo your point really do mean it in a theological way too. And there is, you know, like if people want to kind of 
read this there there is a kind of uh, even the mystical writers that i work with uh in in the last chapters uh are ones who inspired luther so there is a deep sense that what it means to be a christian or the shape of the christian life is a is a stopping and a receiving it's a confessing that you don't have what you need hmm. uh to find salvation and it's to receive the gift the free gift of the person of jesus christ but it does demand something of you which it demands that you confess that you are one who is in want that you that you don't have this creative way within yourself to save yourself that you are really you do have to submit to something outside you um to save you and so you know even a mystic like Mr. Eckhart has this deep sense of we have to find we find God in nothingness and we find God at the ground when we get to the ground of our being um, that when we realize that all of our own performative acts cannot get us anywhere um, and Luther really doubled that doubles down on that that's where we find um, this incredible promise an incredible encounter with a God who saves us um, in the midst of our impossibility I think um, I think this is what fascinated me about this part of your book and push back here if you disagree. But I sort of feel like in, and I'm fully within this theological framework, but that kind of uh, progressive Christianity is kind of presents this case that you're arguing against is essentially that human beings are good. You know, we're just a little bit roughed up around the edges. We're inherently good. We don't really need that much help. We just need to be kind of patted on the head and told God loves us. Now, again, I, I grew up in the very conservative framework that I was awful, mm. rotten, scoundrel of a human being, um, desperately in need of a savior. Uh, am I caricaturing liberal progressive Christianity too much there? No. And I think it's everywhere in our cultural context. I mean, I really agree with you. I, I'm not one who wants to kind of race into those kind of fundamentalist right, uh, right. heavy-handed categories i think those have been you know quite honestly they've been exposed as abusive and i think they are abusive but i'm not so sure that the best response is to kind of go to a more what we would kind of call an genealogical or philosophical vein like a, a more rousseauian perspective that goes back to jean-jacques rousseau which basically flipped augustine on his head and said uh there's nothing sinful inside of you mm -hmm. when when humanity you're, you're perfect naturally just just the way you are yeah. if anything corrupts you it's that the larger society corrupts you yeah. so to put that in parlance of today it's like you're and this is how my kids the, the school the very progressive school that my kids go to they're essentially you know deeply believe in jean-jacques rousseau's anthropology which is you're perfect just the way you are mm -hmm. and the only thing that's a problem for you is all the haters out there right you know, there's like bullies and haters who don't recognize you in this unique creative way that you are um and again there's something that you can only get to that perspective of the kind of uniqueness and the beauty of the human being through the christian tradition i think you know at least I think a lot of that comes through Christianity, but there's a certain way that it gets flipped. And now the source of your salvation is yourself and yourself's own performance, not that there's something outside of you. And the first move is to confess that you you need you need that 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 there's something that there's something amiss and that you need some some saving from outside of you. And you know, I, I could, you know, I'm sure some of your listeners, people are falling off the treadmill right now or something, you know, or, or as they're getting milk or something or, you know, what? Um, but there's, there's certain ways that having a 
very high anthropology, which you're perfect just the way you are. Mm -hmm. You're unique. You're creative. You're, you're amazing. You just can't listen to those haters out there in society that we we're seeing empirically right now that that kind of anthropology, if you go with me, uh, I mean, we have to prove a correlation here, but, um, that creates incredible amounts of anxiety. And I don't need anybody, right? Depression. Cause people, cause people yeah. outside of me are the problem. So I don't, yeah. I don't need other people. I just need me. Absolutely. It gets to that. And then we have a generation, you know, then, the, then that lives through a pandemic and essentially goes that way. Yeah. And it becomes incredibly isolated because, uh, yeah. Why, why would you even risk, um, getting to know somebody who's maybe will misrepresent you mm -hmm. or, you in you you tacitly know you're competing against them anyhow. Yeah. You know. So, what happens when you just don't have enough energy for that? You know, mm -hmm. like it, it, that becomes very. It, it leads to a, a a certain deep kind of level of despondency. Well, this is really interesting. Let me get let me get back a little bit on track here. Um, thanks for taking that side road with me. Uh, um, on to in a or continuing back on to innovation and. I think this theme or, or something I was going to ask you about too, actually, I can't avoid it. Can't, can't, can't resist here. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Josh Packard and forget the guy's first, uh, first name Ferguson, uh, having the monsoon authors of the book stuck. One of the things they talk about is I think they use the term futurism, which they talk about this kind of temptation or ideology to kind of like, just like throw out everything from the past mm -hmm. and basically saying that like you need these kind of systems and routines and institutions to build something for the future. And I'll just say like, as someone who's done new church as someone who's done like social entrepreneurship, there's this, there's this kind of like message, like, Oh, just go build it all from scratch. And I'll just say like, mm -hmm. from my perspective, it's basically impossible to build anything from scratch. Mm -hmm. um, does this kind of fit in line with your kind of, innovation yeah thing. yeah it it does yeah i mean i i uh I, in the book i i try to use these uh whether well or not try to use these kind of characters mm -hmm. that i have you know so uh and these are people i came i've run into out in the church yeah and, i just don't want to stay away from being a caricature in your next book <laughs> <laughs> it is it is a problem i think you know my wife has told me like no one's gonna ever talk yeah. to you again because i just end up being you know given a funny name I, I used you know i was raised on seinfeld mm -hmm. so you know uh, all, all the kind of nicknames for people um just come out uh come out but you know like there, i've met so many of these young pastors which i think i call apple beast boy here mm -hmm. in this in this book who are just so much just for the past is the enemy mm -hmm. and the only reason they even want to be a pastor is because of what they can create tomorrow and if you told them they had to do that kind of men in black kind of thing where you forget everything that's ever happened they'd be all for mm -hmm. it and i'm i'm not i i feel like they're quite naive um you know to be honest but then i've met these others who are all you know towards the end of their careers who are in this book i call bearded brown turtleneck because mm -hmm. they tend to be older men who have been you know in a, a pastor for 30 years and the color of their beard matches the color of their mm -hmm. turtleneck you know um and they hate this they they hate the idea that church that 
Protestant denominations are trying to change. They feel like everything went wrong back in 1963 when they forgot they stopped saying these kind of words of institution over the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. And uh, they just want to return. They just want to find a time machine and go back. And I'm not so sure that I want to follow those guys either. Like, you know, I'm not so sure that that's the, the best way. So there is a sense here where I, I am trying to do some retrieval. And there is a lot of kind of historical work here. But it is a kind of retrieval that's trying to give us a vision for what it might mean to be faithful today. Um, but I don't think it, it's healthy to, I don't think it's healthy to, to fetishize the past. Mm-hmm. And I also don't think it's healthy to just, well, fetishize the future and forget that there yeah. was a past. I, I, I think there has to be a balance at play here. And as Protestants, we're not very good at it, whether conservative or mainline liberal, we're not very good at holding that tension, but I think it's, more than ever a necessity. Hmm. Let me ask you two more questions if I can before we take a break. Um, one quote you have is that innovation runs in danger of, and I'm paraphrasing here, making the church the star of its own story. Uh, tell me more about that quote. I was kind of curious what you mean by that. Yeah, it's uh, in, in this in this book does build on a, on a book called uh, Churches in the Crisis of Decline, mm-hmm. where I really try to develop that theologically. And my book, larger kind of theological biblical point is that the church the church has an incredibly important part to play in salvation history and in God's working in the world but really the star of the of the church's story is God hmm. and God's ministry to the world God's bringing salvation to the world and that the church's role is to narrate that story the church's role is to be a, a, a supporting uh, part of the supporting cast in that but almost what happens inside of the fear of decline, and almost every consultant tells pastors and denominations this is that like your congregation has to find its uniqueness. You have to find yeah. your singularity because yeah. it's the only way you're going to compete. And so there becomes this obsession that you are the most important thing. Your church is the most important. Their church's story is the most important thing. And yet theologically, that's just not the case. Like the the what gives the church life is remembering again and again that it is seeking for the encounter with a God who is God. And that this God's story, who is breaking into the world and bringing salvation to this world, that's the main story. And of course, the church has an incredibly important part to play in that, but not as taking the spotlight away from God, surely, and really not as taking the spotlight away from the world that God is bringing salvation to. The church is to be a servant. The church is to narrate, be the narrator. If we think about this as a movie or something, it's supposed to be, or a novel, it's supposed to be the narrator here. Yeah, It's supposed to be in a supporting role. And uh, I do think there's a deep temptation in the, in the shadows of decline to make the church obsessed with the church. Yeah. And uh, I think the church only has a life when it gets out of its own way. And you can look at this in all reform movements that really what, energizes reform movements is not when they're talking about how to reform the church. The The best reform movements are always talking about God. Hmm. What is God doing? Who is this God? How do, how do we encounter this God? And that will, by, that will have the effect of changing the church. But the, the focus, no one goes into a, a really historically into a reform movement thinking, um, let's, let's redo the church. Let's, let's, let's make it more relevant. Go in thinking like, how do we help, sinful people hear the word of God again? How do we help people who are, you know, in deep forms of oppression, um, find the, the, hear the word of God that brings life to them? Like those are the kind of, 
I think important kind of conversations that we we have to have. And I think too often, at least sometimes with my own students, it's like, I need to change the church. I need to change the church instead of like, how do you discern the call of this living God? And uh, that will have the effect of changing the church, no doubt about it. But your focus isn't on changing the church. Your focus is on hearing again, um, the speaking and call of the living God. So let me, let me ask one more question here before we take a break. Perhaps this is the thing that stuck out to me most here at the end of the book. You write, and again, I'm paraphrasing, the church doesn't need more innovators. It needs more ministers for what will save the church is an encounter with a living God, what you're talking about just now. And again, this is kind of a hot take issue here. So if, Andrew, if you, if you don't like this, push back against me. I wondered, is, is the problem in many mainline progressive churches, we don't believe this? that we need an encounter with the living God. Yes. Um, and and it, it, I would nuance it just a tad. Okay. Bit. I think as a theoretical idea, there are a few that would say, no, we don't need that. But we being shaped as people who are seeking, seeking to put ourselves in a place of, of encountering this living God. Yeah. I, I think that, I think we either become distracted or we're not so sure we're not even so sure deeply intellectual people could believe this. Hmm. I mean, this is yeah, yeah, the whole series yeah. is kind of, you know, rests on, on Charles Taylor's work. And I think this is kind of Taylor's point is not everywhere in our Western cultural context, but it becomes very easy in this cultural context to think or to not think about God at all, mm-hmm. even for pastors, right. you know, to go like three weeks to go a month and, and just really not think about God. You know, you can go through the motions of writing your sermon right. and, um, you know, doing pastoral care maybe, but have you really thought about God? Not, not really. Um, you, you become kind of a religious professional that's trying to give the religious goods to people. But what does it really mean to be encountered by a living God, to be encountered by the resurrected uh, Jesus Christ? I think, I do think that that's hard. And I think there's a lot of mainline pastors I know who aren't so sure they want to think about that, mm. aren't so sure how to think about mm-hmm. that. Um, and, you know, I, I think we do become, I, yeah, I don't want to say that the whole innovation obsession becomes a distraction mm-hmm. from that, but I do think it potentially runs the risk of that. All right, let's take a quick break. All right, we're back with Dr. Andrew Root. Uh, Andy, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate the conversation. Really encourage folks to check out, what's your, what's your newest book here? Um, is the churches in the crisis of Klein or when church church stops working? Yeah, that's coming out in May. Uh, when the church stops working, which is a kind of uh, a layperson um, version of this ministry in the secular age series that I've been working on. So, okay. um, yeah, the idea is hopefully that uh, staffs and uh, you know um, councils of, of of lay people and, and pastors can can now work through some of these ideas. Well, if you want to really nerd out, I recommend the whole the whole thick series, but I'm sure the, the compilation will be helpful for sure there too. Uh, let's roll through these closing questions here. Tell me, I'm curious to hear your answer here. If you're a Pope for a day, anything you want to accomplish? <laughs> well, if I was Pope for a day, I would, for, the first thing I would do is go to the Sistine Chapel without any lines, you know, like before it opens mm. and, and, mm-hmm. and, and things like that. I'd also get just some really good Italian food if I was Pope for a day. But uh, if I was Pope for a day more directly, truly, if Protestantism had a Pope, um, yeah, I yeah. guess, you know, like if, if that wasn't 
just counterintuitive to the right. to the whole thing. Uh, it would be kind of getting back to wrestling with these big questions of of, of the presence of, of of God, and um, it would try. It would be really trying to release people from the anxiety of decline and and uh, try to to turn us towards uh, something deeper than just uh, yeah trying to win more resources so we can uh, uh, you know feel less uh, vulnerable. Hmm. What's a theologian or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life? <laughs> um, well, the good news is that you know hopefully they're all coming back to life and, right. and with the rest right. of us in the in, in the in the resurrection. But um, it, for me, I would have to say, I mean, anyone who knows me is going to know this is my answer. But uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has been just such a central person to my imagination and uh, to all of my theological development for for 20 years. So probably Bonhoeffer first. Mm -hmm. I kind of would like to meet St. Nicholas um, because, you know, at the, at the council of Nicaea, he punches Arius in the face. So Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if I would really want to hang out with uh, Nicholas too much because I would be afraid I'd get, you know, punched, but um, be kind of interesting to, to see, to see that, Um, you know, to just see his personality. So maybe someone like that too. Um. What do you think history will remember from our current time and place? Mm, that is a great question. I don't know. I mean, it's it's so hard to know inside of it. It feels like to me that, well, it, it feels like we're at a hinge point. Like either mm-hmm. history will look back at us and think this was a really weird time. Like the the first three the first three decades of the the 21st century were very odd times as people were trying to rework stuff. And then they found, they found some stable ground or maybe not. Maybe we just kind of keep going down this road and people look back on it and think like, this is where we became, they probably wouldn't use the word enlightened, but this is Mm -hmm. where we, we got back. You know, like we finally beat all the enemies we had to, and we got back to the right place. I I don't know. Hmm. Um, I do think when we look back in a church history way, we're going to realize that these times were not good times for the church. Hmm. However, we're also, and I think we should remember this now, these are not the worst times that the church has ever had. And I think we sometimes catastrophize, you know, if we don't do something now, if we don't get our junk together now, the church is going to disappear in a decade. Well, first of all, that is a huge theological statement to make mm-hmm. that the very body of Christ could disappear. Um, and it, it gives way more, more power to the human agents than, than to our trust in, in, in divine, in the divine uh, reality. Um, but there have been just, you know, objectively more difficult times for the church in its 2000 years than this one. We are not in the golden era for mm-hmm. sure, but there have been more difficult times like, you know, just go to Northumbria and there were 300 years where they had to abandon churches because there were raider, you know, Viking raiders coming. And uh, yeah, our churches are fragile. Our denominations are fragile, but you know, at least we don't have Viking raiders knocking down the doors (laughs) and stealing all our, our gold or something, you know? So yeah. yeah. So I think they'll remember these as definitely not the golden, golden years of the church, but also not the worst years ever either. What are your hopes for the future of Christianity? Yeah, my hopes for the future of Christianity are really high because my hopes in the gospel and my hopes in um, the work of God are are very high. But what I hope is that we remember that first and foremost, this God that we seek is a God who ministers life um, 
to death and brings life out of death. And I hope that we remember that the practice of ministry, whether done by you know, clergy or done by lay people or any of us, um, is a profound reality. That it is, as we care for one another and when we minister to one another, that we participate in the very being of God by sharing in the action of God. And that is a an incredibly beautiful and profound thing. And I, hmm. I hope we remember that. And I hope we remember that the relationships we have within our world and within our church aren't just for instrumental in, instrumental purposes, that um, just embracing one another and being with and for one another as a witness to a God who's with and for us in Jesus Christ has a sacramental reality. Like there's hmm. a way that God is present in the midst of that. And uh, I think we need, I think we need to embrace that. And that is my concern, you know, that too much of this innovation singularity talk in every relationship, too much of this performing self in every relationship is instrumentalized um, for gain instead of uh, embrace and gift. Hmm. Well, I really have enjoyed this conversation. Really want to recommend the book uh, and your your broader work. Tell folks where they can uh, find your books, get it connected with you, those kind of things. Yeah, well, um, the you know best way to find the books is whether you like it or not is on Amazon. Okay, and, I always try uh, not to give Amazon Pub and people just go right towards it. I know it's just it's so easy, and we're all in Jeffrey Bezos. He's in, yeah. Jeffrey Bezos is in our pocket. So, um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, you can. Just, I mean, you can find things on my website, which is andrewroot.org, and uh, you can you can find me um, there. You can email me if you need to, and uh, you can. Uh, find me talking with my friend Derek on my podcast called When Church Stop, Stops Working, which is uh, reflecting that book that's coming out. Um, but yeah, those are some places to find me. Awesome. Well, one of my rituals is to always leave people with a word of peace. So may God's peace be with you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. One more thing before you go, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul Romaglevitt. Thanks, and go in peace. <laughs>